This is John O'Bacon, author of People Powered, How Communities Can Supercharge Your Business Brand and Teams, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I produce this podcast to help us both keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow faster by taking a sales-based approach to marketing. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. And if you're one of the many, many listeners who's left a review on Apple Podcasts, I want to drop a little something in the mail to thank you. Details after the interview. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome John O'Bacon to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, People Powered, How Communities Can Supercharge Your Business, Brand, and Teams, published by HarperCollins. John O'Bacon is a leading community and management strategy consultant, speaker, and author. He is the founder of John O'Bacon Consulting, which provides community and management strategy, execution, and coaching. He previously served as director of community at GitHub, Canonical, XPRIZE, Open Advantage, and has consulted and advised a range of organizations. Jono is also a columnist for Forbes and opensource.com and has written over 500 articles across 12 different publications. He writes regularly for a number of magazines. And interesting fact, his last name is a meat. Jono, <laughs> congratulations on People Powered and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. It's great to be here. What what an intro. Look at that. You're a pro. Very impressed. So in the book, you talked about how when you were growing up in England, other kids mm. would make fun of the fact that your last name was a meat. And I ask yes. you, John O'Bacon, who's got the last laugh now? <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Internet, by the way, for making bacon something that's cool. Yeah. Yes. No, it was, it was, it was, people always loved my last name, but w literally when I was seven, I used to get pretty much humiliated at school in the playground for it. So things yeah. have changed. Well, my name's not Bacon, but I was humiliated at the playground. But but I'm still humiliated. But that's because I have older brothers who want to keep me in my place. But, it's a bigger playground. Yes, that's right. So are you related or connected in some way to Kevin Bacon? No, no, no. The only person I'm related to is Brad Pitt from a looks perspective, obviously. Um, but no Kevin Bacon. No. Oh, wow. Well, that's good yeah. because uh, I have the best looking audience in all of podcast land. So, you oh, know, wow. you fit right in with these people looking like, <laughs> I'm uh, very, like Brad. I'm very Pitt. impressed. Well, of course. Yeah. I'm a natural listener. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Now, 
Let's get back to John O'Bacon, because there's one other thing I want to read from the book. You write, when I was 18, I left school with a distinctly average set of grades. When I studied Mm. my GCSEs, the exams we covered in my core education in England, I averaged out with Cs. I went on to A-levels, the education between school and university, and I got two Ds, an E, and an N. I think an N meant I spelled my name wrong on my damn exam paper. My journey from there was non-linear. I discovered the open source community, started writing articles for magazines, became a casual journalist, then got a job as a consultant based on an article I wrote. From there, I built a reputation, joined a hot up-and-coming company, and one thing led to another throughout my career. Not everything in life is a four-step plan. And I guess this is first and foremost on my mind, Jono, because my career trajectory, definitely not uh, linear. And I got a daughter who just graduated from college. She came home from spring break and then they said, don't come back because you can't, you know, we can't have anybody back here now. Mm. And all her stuff was delivered two weeks ago on a couple of pallets. (laughs) She couldn't even go back and get it. And she's like (laughs) so many young people as well as people I hear listeners I hear from who are like, Oh, what should I do? You know, I, I, I got my whole life's ahead of me. I've got to, I've got to do that. And I, I it's like, uh, that story there. I want to say, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's going to be, be okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, I think it's one of those things whereby I remember vividly when I was at school and I, and I wrapped my, my GCSEs up just the sense of, of panic of, there isn't anything um, that I can see as a career path that interests me. And I think that's the thing I wrestled with at school was I just wasn't interested. It didn't mean that I didn't, I didn't have talent. I think it was just, it wasn't capturing me. And, I, and I've met so many people who fall into this category. People are like, yeah, I really sucked at school. And then I discovered whatever it might be outside of school. And then that became my passion, you know? Yes. Yes. And so uh, I think sometimes that it, advice to people is maybe misunderstood where we say, you know, follow your passions or follow your love or whatever. I think uh, slightly uh, more sober advice would be follow your interests. Just find something that's halfway interesting and you're almost, (laughs) uh, you're you're guaranteed uh, success. So, Jono, I loved the book. It's beautifully written and I liked it not just because you mentioned my hero, Dr. Evil, uh, shout out to my <laughs> listeners in Belgium. And on, on, on pa- also on page 132, you mentioned a community of which I am a proud member, the Harley Owners Group. Ah, oh, you're a Harley owner. Cool. Yes. So, and I've got the leather jacket to go with it too. Really, the, the, the Harley is so that I could wear leather, but you know, let's, let's, let's not go, let's not go into well, that. Well, let's stay well clear of that particular avenue of conversation. <laughs> yeah, I, you're, you're right. And I, and I hear that a lot from people. So, Jono, I have been on boards of directors in the past and I'm, I think I'm allergic to them just because I'm not well suited to that kind of, you know, deliberative body and, and I, right. and I became frustrated with a lot of them. And as I read your book, it occurred to me that this is a book that business, the right business people should read. But also, everyone who runs a nonprofit should read it. And every alumni association professional should read it. And every mm. religious organization uh, 
that wants to grow their congregation should read it. Because I, as I looked back, I was on the vestry of my church. I was on my alumni association right. board. I was on the board of some other things. And this just points back to it so beautifully and so in such a granular way. And I think uh, sometimes I'll, they'll say, oh, well, you serve on our board. And I say, no, I, don't really, I can't really do that. I'm happy to help you. But now I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, I want you to buy this book, <laughs> read it, oh. and then tell me <laughs> what you need help with. All right. So have I, you heard- I, I agree with that plan. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, that's right. Well, no, but seriously, this will be episode probably 290, I think, of the Marketing Book Podcast. And this is the right. first book I've had on about building a community. And mm-hmm. so it's uh, clearly there's a, a demand for this. It's, it's very important. And I want to read one excerpt from the beginning, and then we're going to go crazy here. It's um, page 30. The method I share in this book, which I have developed over the last 20 years, is focused on how to build a strategy so the tactics specific to your community will naturally manifest themselves. You can think of this as a lens through which to look at communities and a blueprint in which to approach them. This will give you the foundation of how to predictably build any number of different communities. John O'Bacon. I will now read the title of the first chapter (laughs) and ask you to elaborate. And I'll come back in about 45 minutes and see how you're doing. What (laughs) is a community and why do you need to build one? Yeah, I mean, I think at its its core, a community is basically a, it's a group of people who have a shared interest or a shared passion. And, And I tend to break it down into into three models. Uh, one is I call consumer communities. These are people who get together because they have a, a common interest. They like Taylor Swift. They like Stranger Things. They like the new Eurovision movie that came out. Um, the second is going to be champion. And this is people who don't just get together and hang out in the same tribe. They actually create things. They create content. They run events. They provide support to each other. And that's where the majority of when I work with companies, that's the majority of communities that they want to build. And then the third is is what I call a collaborator community. And this is where people build the same thing together. So instead of creating lots of individual bits of content, they work on, for example, a piece of software um, or a, a plugin or something along those lines. And what's exciting about this is that we are a fundamentally social species. We we it, There's a reason why communities are interesting to people. There's a reason why we form together into groups and we form together into families and we form together into businesses is because we're social. The the challenge I think that the business world has faced is that there's this kind of division between the customers and the and the company. You know, the customers are the people out there who buy your products and you maybe send a couple of emails to and that's about it, but it, they primarily broadcast to them. And the whole point of communities and the value of it in my mind is you first of all build a relationship with with this audience, but it's not a relationship where you are, you know, the broadcaster. It's a place where your your community can actually work together. They can brainstorm. They can generate value. They can explore new ideas and and and, and innovate. And it's incredibly powerful. And in the last ten or fifteen years, we've seen a huge amount of growth in communities. And one of the reasons why I wrote People Powered was there just wasn't a business book out there for how to do this. There was books about you know, the psychology of groups and stuff like that. But I think most business leaders, they don't necessarily want that. They want, okay, communities are interesting. How do I actually go about building one? And that's kind of the the, the whole point of the book. Yeah. So when I hear about building a community, I often think of a software company. That was just kind of where my 
Right. Uh, my perspective was, and in fact, when your publicist first reached out to me, I asked what was probably a stupid question, but I said, is this only about SaaS companies? Is this only about that? And she said, right. absolutely not. Now I've read the book and it's clearly, <laughs> it's way beyond that. But right. for anyone else that may have had that uh, <clears throat> mistaken perception, what are examples of other communities? I mean, I touched on one with Hog, but Harley Owners Group, sorry. Using the lingo right. there. The lingo. Yeah. What are some examples of other communities that aren't just uh, what my preconceived notion was? This maybe some of the things that surprise people about communities. You mentioned the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, the, the, like you say, there's there's a, a whole bunch of, of technology-related communities out there, like Salesforce and Oracle and places like that. And they built communities of millions of people. Um and uh, but then of course there's product communities. When, whether it's something like Fitbit, they've got 1.8 million people who don't just talk about Fitbits. They actually uh, talk about how to swim more effectively or what intermittent fasting is. Um, we've seen communities such as Lego, where their members uh, work together and create new Lego designs, and many of those Lego sets actually get built and sold. Um, another example, um, uh, and, and a little bit of name dropping here is a, is a community called Hit Record. Um, this was founded by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's the Emmy award-winning actor. I actually met him at a conference, and um, I didn't realize he built this community where <clears throat> creative people can come together to, like, one person will, you know, film the green screen, and somebody will create the graphics that go on the green screen, and somebody else will make the script, and somebody else will do the music. And many of these productions have been at Sundance. Um, we've also seen, you know, you touched on, on you know, faith-based communities. There's tons of faith-based communities around the world. There's activism i mean you know f this is a tech example but it's 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 it shows more of the activist side but a good example of this would be mozilla you know they were the forebearers of the um of the firefox web browser but they were really about opening up the the, the web and making it more not something that you know specific companies would own and they they would do things like you know they they raised money to put a full page ad in the new york times they had firefox crop circles that were made there's there's so many examples of this and then of course there are you know, there's 300,000 meetups around the world. And I just did an interview with the CEO of meetup.com on my podcast. Um, and one of the things he mentioned was that a significant number of those meetups are support groups, you know, breast cancer survivors and people who are dealing with all kinds of different elements in their lives. So there, are, there is a multitude of areas where people are building communities. I think where there is where the science has been lacking and the, and the approach has been lacking is how we can really optimize them. Like if you think about, I know a lot of folks who are listening to this are marketeers, if you think about, for example, direct response marketing, everything in direct response marketing has been perfected from how you run your ads to how you write your copy to how you nurture your email list and things like that. We haven't seen as much of that in how we build communities. And that's my goal is to kind of apply that level of scientific rigor to how we do this well. Mm. So explain what you mean when you say, if you don't have a community, you are fully dependent on your marketing and PR teams. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the big challenge that every company faces, right, is you always have a limited set of resources. Even if you're a Microsoft, you've got a limited set of resources. So if you think about marketing, for example, and PR, again, it's a fundamentally broadcast mechanism, right? So marketeers, they're typically incentivized around generating leads. So it's all about 
content marketing and brand marketing in some cases. Uh, PR is all about, you know, just reaching out to journalists and podcasts and YouTube channels and whatever else to try and get that message out there. So the, the you, you can think of it as kind of a t-shirt gun filled with what you want to get done, blasted out at the world. <laughs> that's um, a great, that's a great visual. Know. Yeah. But it's, it's just from those people. So if you've got one marketing person and one PR person, then you've got the limitations of that person's time. The thing about communities is that if you've got a community of people who are really passionate about what you're doing, um, they don't just have the interest, but they have time, they have skills, they have expertise. And if you channel it in the right way, then they can actually play a significant role in helping you. So I'll, I'll give you an example. This is a tech example, but again, I think it, 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 it kind of provides the same point. When I was at Canonical, we decided to build um, a phone platform similar to um, Android. And it was a lot of work and engineering to build this phone platform. We didn't have any of the typical apps. So you know, like most of you use the phones, you've got your email app, your calendar, you've got your calculator, your note-taking app, the web browser, all of those different pieces. We didn't have any of those. So we had this bright idea. Why don't we ask our community members to build them? So we basically identified 12 or 15, I think it was, community members who were passionate about Ubuntu. Um, and we sat down with them. We, we flew them out to our event and did some design and all the rest of it. And within six months, all of those apps were built. We didn't pay them anything. We just flew them out to an event. We engaged with them. We tried to take all of the misery out of, the, out of that process so they could focus on what they enjoyed doing, which was writing the software. And they produced what would have effectively cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to produce if we would have paid people to do it. And that absolutely applies even more in the marketing world. People create content, people run events, people go and speak at events, people create presentations, people do podcasts, people create YouTube videos. You know, why limit it with your team members when you can, when you can nurture and tap into your community to do that stuff as well? Yes, and this t-shirt gun visual, if that was in the book, I missed it because I am stealing that. It's like there's a continuum. There's a t-shirt right. gun on one end, and then there's this oh, book yeah. <laughs> in, a, in a very rather specific way to do this. And when I say specific way, you are abundantly clear on the things, the handful of things you kind of have to get right, as well right. as pretty much guaranteed landmines. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I wanted yeah. to talk about that. You mm. say it, it ain't all roses. And uh right. I was wondering you say uh like there's no silver bullet or guarantee that your community is going to succeed. There's a yeah. lot of detail and has a high risk of distraction and chasing after shiny things. Uh, what mm. what else do you have you seen uh where community efforts just crash and burn? I mean, what are some of the things that are almost guaranteed to make it fail? Yeah. So I think one is, uh, and this isn't specific to communities, but it definitely applies to communities. This is just a broader business thing um, that I will illustrate with uh, Iron Maiden, who are, of course, we, I know we all agree are the greatest rock band uh, the world has ever seen. Never mind the Beatles. I don't care about the Beatles. Iron Maiden is where it's at. And they put on these incredibly elaborate tours and they fly a 747 around the world. They've got to get their crew in there. They've got to deal with all the visas and immigration requirements for all these different countries and all this kind of stuff, right? And their manager was asked, how do you pull off these incredibly elaborate logistical nightmares of, of a tour? And he said, it's very simple. You make a plan and you stick to it. <laughs> and 
<laughs> you know, and I, from my experience as a consultant, people love making plans. A lot of fun making plans. You know, you build it out and you get to be creative. It's the sticking to it piece that's the difficult element. So I think that no matter what you put into your strategy, whether it's a community strategy or otherwise, what we need to do is we need to create a plan that you can regularly review and evaluate. So it doesn't become this, you know, this relic that's stuck in a, you know, a mahogany display case that never changes. Yeah, whatever it's happened to that community thing you guys were talking about, that sort of thing. Right, exactly. It's, I think you need to have a plan and, and, and make it a sacred document where you're focused on it, but it needs to be baked into a process where you're regularly reviewing it, applying data and improving it. And that's one of the things I walk through in People Powered. But I think the other thing that definitely relates to communities that is one of the biggest errors that I see, and I always talk to my clients about not doing this, is they think, I want to build a community. So, you know, okay, I listened to that, you know, that English balding Lothario on, on, the, on the podcast, right? And I need to go and build a community. This sounds great. So what they do is they go and hire a, um, a community manager who comes in, and that person basically owns the project. They build out the strategy. They start, they set up the forum and the blog and all that kind of stuff. And then everybody in that business funnels their engagement with the community through that person. They become an ambassador. And this has two problems. One is that your community members and your prospective community members don't want to talk to that community manager most of the time. They want to talk to you. They want to talk to your staff. They want to talk to everybody. Um, <clears throat> and it's about having that full relationship. If, the, if everything goes through the community manager, then they have this feeling of a press secretary, of an ambassador that's passing messages. So we need to build that direct relationship. But the other thing is that if you take that approach you'll never bake the the ethos of community into your business and you'll completely overwhelm that individual. So the businesses that succeed the most with communities, the, the, the head of the business says, look, <clears throat> our product is critical. It's how we generate revenue. It's how we do what we do. But you know what's even more than that, important than that in some cases, or at least as important, is the relationship we have with our customers and the relationship that we have with the people who are about to become customers. And that's where communities add the value. So we need to make sure that it's everybody's responsibility to play a role in that. And that's the biggest error. Don't, don't have an ambassador. Yes. And a company that's focused on their customers like that uh, sounds to me like one that's going to be successful anyway. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um, you also yeah. talk about something that I hadn't realized, but then it came to me. You said there has to be a need for the community. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is actually a really interesting element of this. I, as again, as a, as a consultant, I work with a real broad variety of communities, right? From people who are trying to make use of unused pork to feed the homeless, to large corporate banking communities that are internal, to communities wrapped around developer platforms. And what's interesting is that one of the reasons why communities work is when people feel like the work is meaningful, uh, they, it increases their enthusiasm and their retention, right? So if you feel like you're, you're moving the needle, you're making the difference in something, and I'm sure everybody's listening to this, you just, you flashed on something in your head where you've experienced something that's really meaningful. Um, but some topics, frankly, are either boring or nobody particularly cares about it. It might be relevant, but nobody particularly cares about it. I worked with one client, for example, who built a, um, a piece of software um, that we started building a community around. They didn't really have any users of it. So we launched the software when we launched the community. And it was very difficult because just no one was interested in the software. It didn't really have any purpose. It was, there was already other things out there. It was solving a very niche requirement that not a lot of people needed. 
So it's very difficult to build a community around that. So I think when you evaluate your community, you've got to look at, is it going to be meaningful for your audience? And does it add value? Because what, in, in exactly, again, to go back to marketing terms, think about when you're nurturing a new, uh, a cold audience, right? You bring them in with a lead magnet or you bring them in with a webinar. You give them something value, value, valuable that they care about and then you nurture the relationship. And it's got to be the same thing with communities. If it isn't interesting, you're going to struggle building a community around it. Let's talk more about that that value um, because mm. you said, you know, you got to be careful that you're not some teenager engaged in navel gazing. <laughs> you really have to think about what, right. well, in, in that instance, I think you said, what can we get out of our community, which is mm. also a, the, the wrong, <laughs> the wrong idea. Right. So we talked about the need. There was one other thing mm. I wanted to ask you about, and you said that it's a cultural challenge, not a technology one. Explain that. Yeah. So, you know, often when I meet people who are, um, whether it's on podcasts or at conferences or, you know, just through email, when I meet people who are just exploring and figuring out whether a community is interesting to them, often the first question is things like, should I set up a Facebook group? Um, you know, should I use a forum? Should I use Slack? Um, what should, what blog software should I use? And they, they, they want to know, and I understand this because that's just how a lot of people are wired up. Like we want to figure out which Lego bricks we need before we build the thing. Um, <clears throat> but it, it really is about building cultures. Um, you know, the communities that thrive are ones where people, um, build great relationships. It's safe, it's rewarding, and it's fresh and new every day when you go there. Um, and the tricky thing about culture is that you you can influence culture, but you can't impose it. So if you think about the culture of society, right? Like for example, here in the well, here in the US uh, where I live, and you know many people who are listening to this live, um, we have just certain cultural norms around, for example, freedom of speech, um, freedom of assembly. Um, there's cultural norms around how we go to restaurants and eat food, and um, you know. You know, we, for example, it's culturally normal to put clothes on when you're walking around. <laughs> you know, these are things that have no one. There's no rule book for this stuff outside of the law. We just have these natural cultural norm, uh, norms of of, of of just happened. So when you create a community and you want to create this place that's generating value, where people are consuming value, um, and it's a place where people you build a level of retention where people just want to go and hang out every day, you need to essentially apply a series of nudges to apply the right kind of cultural norms. So to give you an example, one of the things I always talk to people about when building communities is you want to have a culture of getting stuff done. Like it's, it's very easy to settle into just discussing and debating things forever with no outcome. So what I want to do in the leaders of the community is to say, okay, let's have a conversation, but we need to always be focused on what is the next step. What are we getting out of this? How can we improve this? You want to have a culture in your community of this is malleable. This is a machine that we can all design together. You know, it's very normal in the business world, for example, where the business sets, these are the parameters and rules of operation. And then the people who are in, you know, consuming that have to adhere to that, such as the employees, right? If you go to work at a business and you sit in your cube and you go through your to-do list and you cannot influence, you can't put your personal pictures in your cube and you can't you know have any influence on the work that you're doing it's incredibly unrewarding 
Whereas if you feel the business listens and they're always open to feedback and they're always open to discussion, it's a much more empowering place to be. These are all cultural questions that sit outside of, 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 the, of the platforms. So I always say, start with the cultural elements. And I provide what I call 10 cultural cores in the book of the things I would recommend people focus on the most um, as you shape that. And then when you, because then when you choose Facebook or a form or whatever else, you're using it in the way that's going to be productive and effective as opposed to just, okay, we spun up a Facebook group, we build it, they will come and they don't come. (laughs) Yeah. So chapter four's title just really made me feel better. It's titled Humans Are Weird. And I, you know, I look for affirmation wherever I can find it. John O'Bacon. <laughs> I think you're great, Douglas. <laughs> thank you. So let me start. It, it says, uh, spoiler alert, if we want to really understand communities and how to build them, we need to understand people and how they work. Mm. So, John O'Bacon, why is an understanding of the irrationality of human behavior a requirement <laughs> for building a successful community? Well, my view here is, you know, if you want to be a good chef, for example, um, you need to understand the tools that you've got. You need to understand the ingredients um, and you need to understand flavor profiles. You need to understand the core of what that is. If you want to build software, you need to understand the machine that it's running on, right? You know, if you want to, if you, I don't know anything about bikes, but if you want to go and improve your Harley, then you need to understand the machine and how it's structured and how it fits together. Um, and it's the same thing with communities. Communities are human systems, right? It's a group of people uh, that are connected together. And what we're doing is we're laying in workflow and incentives and and methods that are designed to naturally kind of inspire and infuse just this collection of brains that are all glued together. So that's why I think understanding the psychology is really important. Now, the tricky thing is you can then go down the rabbit hole of psychology. And in fact, there are other other books out there about communities that are just basically social science studies. And I think that stuff is interesting, but I find it ultimately not very useful and frankly, a bit boring at, po- at points. So to me, what I my view is, let's understand enough about the machine, the human brain, for us to be useful. Um, and one of the reasons why I put chapter four in it was, was, was to really talk about the fact that we are irrational creatures who are consistently irrational. This is the study of behavioral economics. And anyone who's uh, listening to this who's not familiar with behavioral economics, I'd encourage you to check out a book called Predictably Irrational called by Dan Ariely. It's an amazing book about this topic. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's fascinating. The challenge with behavioral economics, which is, you know, we're irrational in very consistent ways, is that the maths is really difficult. We, it's difficult to be able to say, okay, this is this human pattern how do we apply it? So I'll give you an example, something I cover in the book. There's something called the Ikea effect. And this is where, you know, Douglas, you go and buy a table from Ikea. I go and buy the same table from Ikea. You build your table. I build my table. You're going to think your table is better than mine. And I'm going to think mine's better than yours. Because we naturally overvalue our own creations because we, we know the level of investment and time we've put into it. So we overvalue that. Now, that has massive implications, for example, for collaborative peer review. Like if I create, for example, um, you know, a blog post for the community and then somebody else goes and edits and reviews it, I'm going to overvalue my blog post. So therefore, if they come at me with criticism, it's potentially going to be difficult to swallow. 
And that's one of the reasons why I'd want to make sure that the peer review process is ultimately very objective. So that's why I think we need to understand the psychology because it, what it will often do is it will often highlight potential landmines that we can swerve around because we know there's going to be a natural psychological kind of trigger reaction to it. And then that can change how we do the work. Well, let's, uh, let's go a little further there. You have mm. in the book the 10 golden rules for engaging with members. And we're not going to be able to go through all 10 of these. Right. But there are a few that I wanted to ask you to elaborate on. Sure. One, your community members work for the community, not for you. Mm. That's a big misperception. <laughs> people thinking, oh, no, those are a subservient group. They, right. <laughs> they treat, right. You know what it reminded me of? Uh, companies that sell their products through channels, you know, distributors right. and things like that. One of the big yeah. mistakes they often make is thinking that those distributors work for them. Spoiler yeah. alert, they don't. They often they do, don't behave do. the way the manufacturer <laughs> wants them to behave. <laughs> right. And so it, when I saw that your community members work for the community, not for you, it just reminded, it made me want to ask, do, do you find that maybe, uh, let's say a tech company, which is maybe very engineering driven, do they mm. become, and, and again, the same things that makes them really successful as engineers, do, do they become even more frustrated when people don't behave just the way they want them to? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. This is actually <clears throat> surprisingly common. Um, you know, um, there's been many companies who, for example, I've worked with as, who are clients where, you know, they'll think to themselves, again, this kind of goes a little bit back to the IKEA effect. They've spent so much time investing in building out this community. And then these, you know, people come in, for example, and work on an open source project and start building tech out together. Um, and the people will be, you know, really excited about the project and building it. So therefore, they will think, okay, um, they're excited about the project. Therefore, they should be probably excited about the company because we're paying as the company so many engineers to work on this community, right? So therefore, they'll want the community to be su successful, but they probably also want our company to be successful because the company's funding the work. And that's a, a logical fallacy um, because... Typically, the, the community members will be supportive of the company if the company's operating in the right kind of way. But what the, what, when, when a community member is taking time out of their life away from you know the upcoming PlayStation 5 and their family and watching the Tiger King for the third time, <laughs> you know, what they're interested in doing is creating something that gets that, that adds that social value to the group, right? Um, in the same way that like if you are, let's say, I'm not, I'm not particularly religious, but one of the things I've heard from a lot of people who are religious is that one of the things they love about the structure of their church is that when they do something, whether it's, let's say, just bringing some food for a congregation, they're doing it for the betterment of the congregation, right? It's that the, the, they're playing, they're, they're, they're doing their bit, they're playing their role in that. And um, that's one of the reasons why it's important to say, people are investing their time to, to improve the overall community. Because if you've got, let's say, um, you know, um, a typical community, let's say it's focused on marketing, right? And you've enabled your community members to create content for the community. Let's say it's updating a, a reference or it's creating blog posts or videos. Each new piece of content, one person may spend half an hour producing a piece of content, but then everybody benefits from it. And that's one of the reasons why communities are so powerful. So, the problem, the problem with this model is that then companies think to themselves, well, they'd probably be excited about going and maybe helping us to sell some product. And it's like, uh-uh, 
probably not. So that's why I think it's really important to 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 bear that in mind. It's a, it's a very careful and frankly a very unintuitive nuance that most businesses are kind of new at. Yes, and you even uh, rule number four was they are not free labor for your company. But <laughs> let's talk about yeah. our friends in sales. Number five was your community <laughs> members. They are not sales leads. And there's another part in the book where you say salespeople away from the community members. Right. Yeah, I mean it's um I mean I, look, I it, it's easy frankly. It's I think it's a low blow to kind of bag on salespeople. <laughs> salespeople get so much so much aggressive, you know, attitude from from people in other departments. And and Well, and I, and, and, I, and yeah, and let me add to that. In defense of the our our our, our brothers and sisters in sales, that that may be the best thing that the company's doing to help generate leads, and that's like, uh, right. no, there's other other things that are that are more effective. Well, I think I take again, kind of to resonate with with the marketeers who listen to this. Um, everybody in marketing knows, for example, if you got a product and you put your Facebook ad out to a cold audience and you try to sell that product directly, even if you've got like a forty or fifty percent off discount coupon, it won't sell. Right, it never selling to a cold audience just doesn't work. So we need to nurture people, and then when we nurture people through free content and value, then the sale will happen much more likely later on in the process. It's the same thing with community members. What we do is we have a bunch of really warm, potentially very hot leads there. What I recommend in the and or they could be a referral source. Exactly. Well, that's kind of what I was going to say. Is that when I what I mentioned in the book is. You want to trigger a situation where your community members go to the sales team, either because they're interested in triggering a conversation or they know people who might be interested in buying the product. So I think if you use your typical sales process, which is identify a lead, um, try to convert that lead with value and then just repeated kind of engagement until they essentially give in, which is what a lot of salespeople do, it's going to do nothing but annoy that person if they feel like a lead. Part of the reason for this is that it kills trust because when you build a community, you need to be able to say, this is a, a safe environment in terms of, you know, we're not going to have kind of like racist, misogynistic content or anything, anything like that. But also you're not just stepping into a glorified sales funnel. Like you can hang out in this community and you're not going to be pestered by salespeople. So we want to design an environment where you have such a positive experience in the community that you develop a positive view of the company that then you want the company to be successful and therefore, you uh, you connect people. You become a connector for potential customers to that company, and then you have the benefit of the referral. Yes. So, moving on, you talked about uh, in creating a, an incredible adventure for your mm. community members. You know, a great experience. Um, again, it's not some lightning in a bottle that you capture. Can you tell us a bit about your community participation framework? Yeah, so the basic gist of this is it took me one of the things I love about you know the work that I'm doing and I, I know many of people who are listening to this will this will resonate with them. I love it when you discover something that was so painfully obvious and sitting there in plain sight. And then you you realize it, you know, 20 years later. Welcome to my world. <laughs> right. And one of those things is it took me a while to realize that the best experiences are fundamentally very carefully crafted journeys. So if you go to Disney from how you 
pull your car up to how you buy your ticket to how you go around the park and you know when you stop for lunch everything is very carefully designed to give you the best guest experience and to get as many people in there as possible it's the same thing with good restaurants for how you book your table and get your water and get your menu and all the rest of it and video games like video games are designed to let you familiarize yourself with the controls and and feel like a level of of completion in those early levels so you feel comfortable we have to do the same thing with communities so if you again just to kick if you just kick open a facebook group or kick open a forum um sure you've got a place where community can congregate but you haven't optimized it for the journey so what i the community participation framework is essentially uh, it's a diagram that i've designed over the course of my career that fundamentally starts out with you identify who your target audience should be because the way in which you build an exciting community for for example engineers is very different to how you do it for designers and very different to how you do it for marketeers and executives and then what you do is you onboard them so they can experience the very first piece of value that they care about and then generate value as well so that could be they join a webinar and they learn something new or it could be they create a bit of content that that the community can benefit from or it could be they answer a question or they post a question they get a response that onboarding is so critical because there is a culture right now or well less a culture it's more of a trend of people hiring evangelists to go out there and they fly them around the world you know outside of a pandemic they fly them around the world to conferences and they spend a ton of money on advertising and and and, and producing content and so it's all awareness so you fill your funnel of people coming into the community but then when they join the community it's really really complicated to get started it takes them forever to sign up and figure out how to get started there's no documentation there's no clear first step and it's a nightmare so the onboarding is really important if you if you add too much friction at the beginning of that process they're just not going to stick with it so all of that outreach which is expensive is then wasted but then what happens is when they've generated that first piece of value so now they've got that huh kind of feeling in their head about this community they start out as casual members they don't have any relationships they don't really know anyone they're kind of new and they feel like you know being a kid at a new school on that first day uh, weird and uncomfortable and then it takes about two months to build a habit so if you get them repeatedly coming back in consuming value generating value making those relationships happen they then become regulars at that point that's when you start building retention and when you start building a sense of belonging and belonging is what you really want to get in a community where people feel like they're part of something where they'd be missed if they went away and a very small n- number of people will become what i call core members which are your like ultra nerds, the people who just love everything about the community. And those people typically don't just care about their own experience. They actually want to make the overall machine better. They care. They think very holistically about making the overall community better as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like the people that run the local Harley owners group that I right. you know, might go ride with. They're really, I, I was able to come up with examples uh, throughout this and not just, um, you know, just from that particular community, but others that I've, I've been in as well. So also, Jono, you're sneaking in, uh, you've snuck into your book a great lesson about customer experience. <laughs> so right. all of these things that you were describing are the same things that companies should be doing. And there've been a, a number of books on the show about engineering a better customer experience. And there, were all, there was a lot of uh, right. you know, similar uh, uh, smart, or should I say proven uh, thinking. Now, I want right. to talk about enthusiasm. Hmm. You write, enthusiasm in the human condition can also be a risk, though. 
It is tempting to fall into the creepy abyss many self-help authors descend into in which they believe anything is possible despite the realities and constraints in the world. While our ambition should be bold and brave, it should also be grounded in realism. We need right. to understand what success can realistically look like. So, Jono, how, uh, how does one go about uh, measuring success and starting to get at uh, what, what, what they need to be doing here. Yeah. So this, this section is actually, um, it, it is my English cynicism, uh, shining through <laughs> about a lot of self-help gurus. Well, I don't know that the English have a, a cynicism because I, that really resonated with me, you know, and not just uh, self-help, but like, uh, marketing gurus or sales gurus, all, right. these, exactly. all these people, but what I, you know, Let's let's. I, I know I keep using that spoiler alert term that I read in your book, but you talked about. Let's see here. You say if it isn't unambiguously measurable, it doesn't exist. That just yes. warmed the cockles of my heart. And you said um, you talked about KPIs. You say there are countless books and seminars on how to produce effective key performance indicators, KPIs. But I'm going to boil this down into something very simple. In fact, you even said you could actually tattoo it on your arm. (laughs) What's what I just said about uh, if it isn't unambiguously measurable, it doesn't exist. But you said, when you ask the question, did we accomplish this? Okay. Right. It should be answerable with a clear yes or no and not a maybe. Right. So exactly. I was really, uh, I felt great about how really specific that when you're building a community, you need to be measuring these things. And again, there's a lot of uh, things that marketers should be measuring uh, yeah. and, and, and not just everything, but the right things. So it warmed yeah. the cockle to my heart and I almost went to the tattoo parlor to get that put on my arm. But- <laughs> I've run out of if time. If you do get it tattooed, just make sure you take a picture and send it over. Okay. Oh, it's going to say John O'Bacon. <laughs> uh, I would expect nothing. If you could put my, a bit tattoo of my face on there, that would actually be a little bit better. Yeah, that's going to be a little um, extra. So, uh, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I, mean, I may take up a collection for my community for that. <clears throat> I, think, I think it's one of those things whereby, and it kind of gets a little bit to the self-help thing, is I just I, I have, I have an, uh, an allergy to... Excuse me. Uh, the people who are just, um, just, they have this, they're just frankly off with the fairies when it comes to what the future looks like. Like, I'm a big believer that we can unlock a lot of potential in ourselves. But, uh, you know, these, for example, these marketing gurus who are like, you can make 10 grand a day with, you know, one hour's worth of work with drop shipping or whatever it might be. And what they fail to include, and where I think it's incredibly disingenuous, is that. Um, it takes, first of all, a lot of work. And secondly, the people who are successful take a good hard look at what they're not good at and, and, and where their, their flaws are. And I think while, you know, I'm a big fan of people like, you know, Gary V who are always talking about, you know, the hustle and working hard and all the rest of it. I think what a lot of those folks fail to touch on and fail to, to guide people on is you've got to really look deep into like 
what are your weaknesses? And don't look at it through the lens of, I suck at this, I'll never be good at this. But look at it as, what is the weakness that I've got? How do I understand it? And how do I put um, something in place to measure whether I'm getting better at it? So a good example of this would be, if you're, if you've, if you're not good at copywriting, right? And you identify, like my, my, my pages are not converting because I suck at copywriting and I'm too cheap to hire a copy editor, a copywriter. Um, a great way to do that would be to say, I'm not good at copywriting. I'm going to go and learn how to do this well. And then I'm going to do split testing and watch my results get better because I can measure it objectively through split testing. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think a goal there should be, um, it shouldn't be get better at copywriting. The goal should be increase conversion by 10%. And that's kind of what I mean by a lot of KPIs, a lot of plans include things like improve and, you know, optimize. And these are just cop-outs. Yeah. Um, where, where's the yes or no there? Exactly. Exactly. And that's why, and I think part of the reason for that is, first of all, people are often unwilling to commit because there's the possibility of failure. And look, I'm not going to get on my, on my, uh, soapbox about this because I was one of those people for many years. I didn't measure anything because I was, I was terrified of failure. Um, and it took a while for me to kind of break that bad habit. And it was actually a friend of mine who said like, you need to get over yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, um, but the other thing as well is it's hard to think of those metrics. It's hard to actually say, can we answer this with a yes or a no, you know? And often when I'm working with clients, for example, I'll say in a very polite way, no, it's not good enough. Let's keep thinking until we find something, yes or no. Yes, and I deal with clients like that all the time where, right. <clears throat> you know, it, nice as possible, what I want to know is how how will we measure success, just like the way you you wrote it. And they don't usually know, not because they're not bright people, but they haven't thought about it. It's like, okay, right. great. Well, let's let's talk about what we can measure. Ex- yeah, exactly, and 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 you know, yeah. If if you're not, if I don't think if you're if you're not measuring it, you're not improving it. So, um, and we cut the tricky thing about communities. To be very clear to everybody, is communities generate tangible value. The stuff we can measure with computers, like content and open rates, and people who run events and people who create tech and whatever else. But the real challenge is they generate massive amounts of intangible value. Um, Support, mentoring, kindness, um, just affiliation with each other. Yeah, exactly. That sense of belonging. You just you'll never be able to measure that effectively. Um, so I think what we do is we focus on measuring the tangible stuff. And if you do it the right way, the intangible value will naturally shine through, and you don't have to worry too much about measuring that. Mm-hmm. So just a couple of the questions I wanted to ask you about live events. Um, yeah. I know we're in the pandemic, but the, uh, we'll get back there, folks. We're <laughs> yep, we're all going to be to it. But I just wanted to uh, read one other piece here. Um, it says you, you write as technology marches forward, more and more communities are not just going digital, but becoming primarily digital. Given this, it is easy to think of in-person events and engagement as nice to have instead of essential. This right. is an in- mistake. While digital environments allow us to scale, they largely lack the presence and personality of in-person events and engagement. Mm. Working together in the same room builds relationships and trust and often results in more focused and efficient collaboration. If you ignore bringing your community together in person, in your strategy, you are missing out. So 
are you now pandemic aside, sounds like you were starting to see a lot more of uh, organizations starting to um, try to eliminate the, the live events. Yeah, kind of yes and no. I mean, I think <clears throat> the the challenge here is that uh, I think companies see the value in live events. Um, I think the problem is that they don't they don't manage their event strategy very well. So what mm-hmm. they do is they say let's let's just pick a conference and go. And the 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 most significant decision is usually who gets to go. Do we sponsor it and do we have a booth? Um, is usually what it looks like. That's the extent and, of the planning, right there. Yeah, right. And I think it should be things like, as an example, before you go to the event, look at the attendee list, if there is one, look at the speakers and think, who do I want to speak to? And book meetings with those people before you get there. Because when you get there and you meet someone in the, in the hallway tracking, like, hey, let's go and hang out for a bit and, and catch up. Everybody's busy. Everyone's got a schedule at that point. So I think it's all about focusing on priori- prioritizing that. I think smaller organizations, especially, are reluctant to focus on events because they're very expensive and they can't measure the the impact of it so i would much rather for example instead of going to a large event uh, you know with thousands of people i'd much rather focus on going to a series of meetups um if you're managing that effectively because there is an enormous amount of body language that's missing from um from online i mean i'd encourage anyone to go to youtube and do a search for there's a video of princess andrew been interviewed about the Epstein um, allegations. And there's these four body language experts, or three, I think it might be, who were basically watching his body language and evaluating and telling the audience like what they're seeing. And it makes you realize just how much communication happens that's nonverbal. Mm-hmm. And we miss out on that online largely. I mean, video's good and it's better than just phone, but so we're missing out on a lot of that. So I think it, having some strategy around that is really important. Um, but I think we need to be really efficient and we do that. Just showing up at events is just, I, frankly, I don't think it's good enough. Um, and it's very expensive. Yes. And I, if I can find that video, I'll include it in your episode show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Mm. My sense is a lot of companies, let's say, they'll say, or excuse me, a community, they'll say, okay, we've got some community members. Let's do a live event. <laughs> and what I found interesting was uh, what you have on page 238, your event evolution path. This would mm. save a lot of time and money and employee turnover <laughs> if folks might <laughs> maybe take this approach first. And I'll just skim over them. But first off, it's like five steps, stairway to heaven. Shout out to your folks back in, uh, back in England. <laughs> right, but first exactly. off, guests speak at an event. And then the next one is co-organize an event. And the third one is organize your own meetup. Meetup, that's what you just mentioned. And then organize a co-scheduled event. And then finally, organize your uh, dedicated event. So I think Mm. it's almost as if um, when somebody, let's say the CEO or somebody who's excited about this, they say, we want to have an event. If, if somebody could come back and say, oh, that's a great thing we should work for. Let's take a look at this event evolution path. Let's right. start out, boss, by seeing where it would make sense for you to speak. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's the thing is events are time consuming. They're expensive. 
they're they're way more time consuming and expensive than I think any. They're, they're, to me, they're like the the marketing equivalent of a house remodel. They always take longer to do, and they're always more <laughs> expensive than you expect, and um, <laughs> and emotionally so, so, wrenching. <laughs> And emotionally wrenching, yeah. And, you know, often smells like dust as well. So uh, I think what with with a lot of this, what we need to do is if you start, if you go through that evolution, what you're doing is you're building your sea legs, right? You're, uh, you're starting out with, with content, which is where it should be at, um, with meetups where you go and speak somewhere. And then you're getting gradually into the event organization piece. Now, if you've got a full events team, you you can you can jump ahead, of course, um, but most organizations don't have dedicated event staff, so that's why I think it's really important to do that because the amount of times I've, for example, worked with companies where I've come in and they said, "Yeah, we decided to run our own conference," and then you know we either had to cancel it or we had twenty five people show up, and it was a complete it was embarrassing. You know, you want to <laughs> you want to you want to avoid that. Yes, yes. So, Jono, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I think the one thing to me is the the relationship between companies and uh, customers and audiences is shifting. You know, is that uh, if you think about you know ten fifteen years ago, if you had a question for uh, about a product that you bought from a company, uh, you go and call the customer support line, and that will be it. And then as the internet happened, we started seeing. Um, marketing towards audiences with email addresses, but it's still very broadcast. The company is just broadcasting. And I think what what consumers and businesses and organizations want now is a relationship. You don't just want to buy the product. You want the company to be invested in your success of the product. And that is more important than ever because millennials are growing up um, with a social internet. They're growing up with Instagram and Facebook and whatever else. So it's changing the relationship. And I think communities are an amazing way to harness that change. And I just encourage everybody here to go and think about that and then um, and explore what that might mean for you. I agree. And there have been so many books that talk about how those companies or organizations that are closest to their customers, that understand their customers better, always win. And it seems yeah. like a community is a great source of that kind of insight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what is one thing a listener could do today? Maybe one who wants to start down the path of uh, building or improving their community. What's just one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the many ideas from your book? I'd I, I break this into two pieces of the same thing. The first thing is I'd think about, based upon the audience that you know, that will be unique to you, what are three bits of value that they always want, right? And that they always care about. Right, so that could be content. It could be events. It could be skills. Getting yeah, getting skills and education. It could be all kinds of different things. And then, but prioritize them. Like, what are the top three? You can probably think of loads. Um, and then also think about what are the three th areas of value that they can create, and that might be related to the value that they consume. So, for example, if you say they love content, they love articles and videos and things like that, could your audience? potentially generate that content could they potentially create those articles could they create those videos if you start with figuring out the value that they want and the value that they could create you've basically got the very first pieces of a blueprint of building a community you just need to figure out how to expose more of that con more of the, that value for them to consume and then how to create an environment where they can where they can create that con that value um, in a way that's meaningful 
That's a great answer. And spoiler alert, folks, what they want, they probably don't want to hear about your products and services first. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. What they don't want is your endless, endless marketing drivel. (laughs) Okay. They want things that relate to solving pain uh, and making pain go away and adding value to their world. Like your feature data sheet is not included in that list. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry to break it to you, folks. So what books have most inspired your work and career, Jono? There's a few. I mean, uh, it sounds like a horrible cliche, especially given our bagging on the self-help people earlier on, but The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People was a really transformative book for me. I just Well, now that straight. was a good book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's a difference. Right. right. Not beat up on Mr. Covey here. Right, exactly. I, I think it's an I think it's 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 a it's a great great book. Very simple to read uh, and really meaningful. I'm also a big fan of a book called The Obstacle is the Way uh, oh, by, yes. Ryan, by Ryan Holiday. Um, I actually, um, if it wasn't for that book, I wouldn't have started my consulting practice because I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my career. Uh, and all I was seeing was, you know, the obstacles in, 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 in my path of what if there's not enough business? What, what if I, I'm not very good at what I do and all the rest of it. And that really helped that. I actually have a stack of them in my office. And when people are going through tough times, I mail them a copy. Like a friend of mine, for example, she was diagnosed with cancer about a year ago, sent her a copy and she was like, this book was amazing. Oh, what a <laughs> so, great idea. What a great thing know, to send. You know, it's just a, it's a, a, you know, I promise you everyone I'm not on commission for that book, but it's a really great book. Yeah. So I, those two are definitely big ones. Well, speaking of uh, arm tattoos, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> Ryan Holiday, on one arm, he has tattooed the obstacle is the way. And on the other arm, he has tattooed ego. And those were the those are two mm. of his books. And I interviewed him about ego is the enemy, and as well as uh, I interviewed him about Perennial Seller, in which he right. talks about the success of Iron Maiden. See how this is all coming together? It's it's Mr. just Bacon. one big happy one big happy family right here. <laughs> but in all his learning, he realized that you know the obstacle is the way, and then ego is the enemy. Two of my favorite favorite books, and the obstacle oh, is the way turned into this cult classic, yeah. particularly with the the story is that was published and Bill Belichick, the coach for the New England Patriots American football team, mm. read it, loved it, gave it to everybody in his organization. And then of course <laughs> all the other NFL teams started reading it. And he kept getting pulled back onto ESPN to talk about the book. <laughs> and he's like, ah. I'm not a sports expert. I mean, he, you know, he but he's a he's an author. And yeah. his book was so successful, and he was already writing the second one. Uh, and there's a third one out called "Stillness Is the Key," which I haven't read yet, but I it's I haven't read that. Back. Yeah, he's also got the um, the daily. I think it's called the Daily Stoic. Yes, as well, yes, which is because the whole stoicism thing. I know it's kind of being co opted by, you know, kombucha drinking, you know, San Francisco Silicon Valley socialites. <laughs> um, I didn't realize that. I don't get out but, much. Uh, it's uh, stoicism is is I'm a I'm definitely a stoic. I think it's incredibly powerful. So I'd encourage people to check that out as well. And Ryan Holiday is kind of like the modern stoic lead. Yes, like everyone. He's our leader. Yes, and he's got the Facebook group, and he's got this uh, one thing I did yeah. a couple years ago, where like the first 14 days of the year, he has like the stoic challenge. 
Right. And it's just a it really, it's a really cool experience that he does online where you, you do these different things each day and kind of help to uh, reorient uh, yourself. And yeah. I've got that daily stoic as well. And uh, yeah, big fan. So, um, yep. Absolutely. But that's a great idea about sending that book to somebody who's going through a hard time. You must be a good friend, Mr. Bacon. <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, that's for my friends to decide. So are uh, there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Um, they're not particularly recent. I'm, I'm always behind the times, you know. For, I watched Lost you know, just as it was about to come into its final season, for example. Oh, I'm the same way. Yeah. yeah. I wait until I, you know, I'm not, I'm not the early adopter on a lot of this, this stuff. Yeah. Right. Not a trendsetter, but I'm actually just, I mentioned copywriting earlier on. I'm actually reading a book called the copywriter's handbook, which apparently is the Bible for people who do copywriting. I just think it's really interesting. The role of copy and, uh, you know, written the written word on, how people, you know, understand what we're doing. And it's, it's actually, I thought it was going to be a boring book. It's actually really interesting. So I'm, I'm reading that right now. I read a book recently called the one page marketing plan. Which, oh yes. Alan. Did. Um, yeah. And I was, I'll be honest with you. I had a bit of an allergic reaction to the title of it, but it's a great book because I was relatively new at some of the principles he was talking about in there. Um, and it's a, a really fabulous book. I think it was really well written. Um, I mentioned Predictably Rational earlier on by Dan Ariely. I think that's a, a fabulous and really interesting book. But I'd actually, it's not a book, but one thing I'd recommend for the, when we talked about the IKEA effect earlier on and behavioral economics, if you want to watch something entertaining, there's a guy called Rory Sutherland. Oh, yes. I interviewed is, him about his uh, most recent oh, book. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh. It was a real adventure, the book and the interview. Oh, I, I'll have to check that out because he is. He was my introduction. I, I, a friend of mine, my best buddy in England, showed me a video called the, um, conf- I think it was called Confessions of an Ad Man, uh, which is a, a TED talk that he did, or TEDx talk. And he's a really entertaining speaker. He's the, probably the most English person I've ever seen on the internet. <laughs> you know, wears a scarf, the whole deal. And his and, wife uh, is an Anglican priest. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. He's, I just, I, I, I just absolutely adore his work. I think it's amazing. And, but go and check out, um, go and check out his YouTube video. It's a great introduction to behavioral economics. So. Oh, well, we'll make sure to include that on, on your, uh, episodes show notes. Yeah. And, uh, he, at Confessions of an Ad Man was also a book by David Ogilvy and Rory has worked right. at Ogilvy for, for many since years. Since the 1980s. Now. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. uh, I think when on his Wikipedia page, it even says that he was, it was documented that he was the worst account executive in the history of the firm or something like that. Just hilarious. <laughs> That's oh hilarious. my goodness. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to uh, johnobacon.com and your resources page and your LinkedIn profile yep. and all these other things that you've mentioned. I'm going to go look those up right now. So listeners right. can uh, find them and they can connect with you. And I hope they'll, at least a few of them will reach out and thank you for Uh, being on the podcast. And Hmm. for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. There was just one quote from the last page of the book I wanted to mention. You say, the human condition is not a fearful, angry, divided one. It is a social and supportive one. We thrive together. 
The name of the book is People Powered, How Communities Can Supercharge Your Business, Brand, and Teams. The author is John O'Bacon. John O, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. This was a real pleasure. Appreciate you having me on. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who've left an iTunes review, I would like to return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I will drop it in the mail to you. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on this show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of, for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.